Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine discuss the ongoing battle for Avdivka, and analyse the issue at the forefront of Ukrainian society and politics for weeks now. Mobilisation. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 15th of February, one year and 355 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and our guest is spectator journalist, Svetlana Moronets. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start inside Russia, Russia's Kursk region, to be precise. An oil depot is on fire there, been hit by a Ukrainian, alleged Ukrainian drone strike. This is coming from the local governor, about 90 miles from the border. There's footage online you'll find of the blaze. Shows to It seems to show an explosion at the facility, flames coming out of buildings, black smoke in the air. Russian media are saying two drones hit the site, no casualties. This comes from, well, he was, they were reporting Roman Stadovoit, who's the local governor. Russia also claims today that another missile strike in Belgorod, a neighbouring region, has killed five. We know Ukraine has repeatedly used drone strikes to target Russian energy infrastructure in recent months. There were two hits on the oil refineries in Krasnodar, region last week so it looks like it might be a similar pattern there and last night russia launched a series of missile strikes across ukraine last night killing and injuring across the country the strikes targeted seven ukrainian regions including kiev dnipro zaporizhia and lviv this comes from ukraine's military apparently 16 settlements came under attack in kharkiv there are still people as of a couple of hours ago when i last checked the report, still people under the rubble there. This comes from regional governor Olyei Sinyabov, speaking on Telegram. And in the western city of Lviv, Russian missiles are said to have damaged apartment buildings, schools, kindergarten, leaving a number of people injured. The mayor, Andrei Sadovyi, has reported. They also hit, missiles also hit infrastructure in Zaporizhia, injuring six. And Ukraine's air force says that they, the air defence shot down 13 of 26 Russian missiles, including all the strikes aiming for the capital. Now, over to Avdivka in the east, it is looking very, very bad there for, for the Ukrainian forces. Vadim Filashkin, the head of the Donetsk Regional Administration on Telegram, said the only evacuation route from Avdivka is completely shot by the Russians. The Ukrainian military spokesman said the reserve supply routes had already been planned, as you'd expect. Dmitry Likova said in the event that the main logistical artery is cut by the enemy, our commanders provided for backup supply routes. General Alexander Tarnavsky, speaking earlier in the week, you may remember, said Ukraine would use fresh troops to defend those supply lines. 
But as of today, Kyiv has said it's redeployed the third separate assault brigade to strengthen Ukrainian positions in in Avdivka. The unit actually posted that, or the brigade posted that on Telegram before I get bashed for breaching OPSEC. They described the situation in the city as extremely critical. So Russia was continuing troop rotation and throwing new resources into capturing the city. Then it's odd, odd story from the US that we're running with. It was on the front of our, it was a splash today, the front page story, big front page story today. This, this supposed Russian military capability in space. Joe Biden was urged last night to declassify US intelligence, which is said to have been shared with every member of the US Congress, that is thought to suggest Russia is putting some sort of new weapon in space. Nuclear weapons have been mooted, very easy headline, nukes in space, etc., etc. As possible, unlikely in my opinion, I think it might be more of an EMP weapon, electromagnetic pulse or electromagnetic phenomena, the, the thing that, that occurs after a nuclear burst, but you don't need, necessarily need a nuclear burst for it, that can knock out communications and other military and civil systems. The US president is understood to have been tracking the threat, which has been described as grave but not immediate, for some weeks, according to White House sources. And Republican Mike Turner, who's the head of the House Intelligence Committee, he talked or he revealed this, the existence of the intelligence in a public statement and called on Mr. Biden to share it with the public. So if it's now out in the open and revealed by the House Intelligence Committee, you can be pretty damn sure that the US authorities have known about it for a long time and will have been uh, looking at uh, what to do about it. White House officials said last night they assessed the threat to be serious, but said there were ways to contain it. And then colleagues of ours here at The Telegraph have spoken to Dr. Malcolm Davis. He's a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And uh, Mr. Davis said if Russia has, in fact, deployed nuclear weapons in orbit, that would be a deliberate and direct violation of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty by Moscow. That treaty is a cornerstone of space stability, and this would be a grave setback for international arms control. Now, Jake Sullivan, Mr. Biden's national security adviser, he said he's going to brief the so-called Gang of Eight. Those are the top leaders in Congress on the intelligence today. Mr. Sullivan said he had taken the highly unusual step of offering himself up, along with the country's top intelligence and defence professionals, asked, in, in, asked by the press whether the public had anything to worry about. Um, Mr. Sullivan said that question is impossible to answer with a straight yes or sorry, asked if the public had nothing to worry about. He said, impossible to answer with a straight yes. He said, Americans understand that there are a range of threats and challenges in the world that we're dealing with every day. Democrat Jim Hines, who's also on the House Intelligence Committee, he said that uh, Mr. Turner's actions, uh, Mike Turner, as I said, the Republican head of the committee, putting it out in the public domain. Jim Hines said that that action was right to highlight the issue. An outbreak of bipartisan sort of action here. Said it was Mike Turner was right to highlight the issue, but he urged calm. Mr. Himes said people should not panic. That is unequivocal. Blimey, if anyone ever says it's unequivocal, don't panic. Okay, he said I don't want people thinking that Martians are landing or that your Wednesday is going to be ruined. But it's something that the Congress and the administration does need to address in the medium to long term. Now, a letter from the House Intelligence Committee to all members of Congress has said that the panel has identified an urgent matter with regard to a destabilising foreign military capability that should be known by all congressional policymakers. Responding, Serbe Rybakov, who's Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister, he said the United States was making a malicious fabrication. 
is quoted by TASS. And then Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman for the Kremlin, waded in. He said he would not comment on the substance of the reports until the details were unveiled by the White House. He said Washington's warning was clearly an attempt to get Congress to approve more money for Ukraine. You might be right. He said it's obvious that the White House is trying by hook or by crook, and he'd know all about crooks, by hook or by crook to encourage Congress to vote on a bill to allocate money. This is obvious. We'll see what tricks the White House will use. Sounds like something out of Scooby-Doo, what tricks the White House are going to use. And then just finally for me, announcement this morning that Britain is going to supply thousands more drones to Ukraine as part of a £200 million support package. This came out of MOD. This drone package is part of an international effort that Britain is leading or co-leading with Latvia. Sorry, Grant Shapps, Defence Secretary, said, together we will give Ukraine the capabilities it needs to defend itself and win this war to ensure that Putin fails in his illegal and barbaric ambitions. Now, I spoke to some folks in the uh, in the MOD about this because that raised a huge amount of questions for me. I spoke to them and, and what I think is going on here. So this 200 million was announced in January. This is just more detail about where that's going. So it's not new money. Britain has committed to 2.5 billion pounds in financial year 24-25. That's on the 2.3 billion for the last two years combined. So this year, that will take it to over seven billion. So, you know, all good stuff. But this is this is part of that, not new money. It's thought that the drones that they're going to be they're going to be focused on will be surveillance, long range strike, and sea drones. Although I didn't get any real figure for the breakdown of numbers. What I think is going to happen here, I've been steered. This is going to establish a drone school and a test range for Ukrainian operators. That's going to be likely be hosted in Latvia, and then it will also streamline the development of first-person view drones that bit's going to be led by led by the uk so this is good i think we it, it is in the is in the realm of it, it's all good it's a nice problem to have kind of thing but numbers would be more helpful they talk about thousands the height sort of last summer we think that the sort of estimates are that russia and ukraine were going through about ten thousand drones each month because of course they are they vary from the very small quadcopter come out of the sports industry basically type drones up to much more bigger much more capable but they're susceptible to jamming they're susceptible to be shot down the kind of robust fpv first person view drones that we've been that we see a lot of they're relatively modern um, development innovation in the last few months both sides absolutely going through drones 10 a penny so how far will 200 million pounds go a reasonable way but will it be it might just be like a month or two months of of capability all good but as i say we've just got to put it in context and try and work out quite what they mean the press release this morning from mod was very glitzy which is their job no I've no problem with that at all but it's then up to us the journalists to do some more digging as we will continue so to do and that's that's us updated now david Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley, what on the political and diplomatic scene has been catching your eye this morning? Thanks, David. I can't quite believe I'm about to say this, but for once I find myself agreeing with the Kremlin. Do not adjust your sets. I do think the timing of this announcement into the Kremlin space weaponry is no coincidence, coming at this vital moment when President Biden's administration is trying to persuade the House of Representatives to pass that military aid package for Ukraine. That's not to say the weapons aren't real, by the way, which is what the Kremlin claims. 
Atomic weapons, whether in space, like in a Bond movie, or on Russian soil, have played a vital role in this war at various phases. Indeed, without them, I still believe there would have been a conventional military response from Western countries to push the Russians back to their own border. That is one of the most dangerous aspects of this conflict, how it has elevated the status of nuclear weapons as a diplomatic weapon, deterring nations from doing anything that might make Putin's hand hover over the big red button. As an absurd idea, though, I think that belief is. Countries who do not currently have them, like Iran, will no doubt be accelerating their research to acquire such weapons as a geopolitical priority, as a consequence of the fear factor they have instilled amongst Western nations, hesitating to give weapons for fear of escalation. Of course, such weapons are heinous by their very nature. But do I believe America or any Western country today would use them in an act of aggression rather than defence? No. But the danger with regimes like Iran, especially those less stable and with a theocratic flavour, may well be less inclined not to use them for fanatical reasons. That is, in my view, as it was in Christopher Hitchens's view, the great danger facing Western civilization with regard to atomic weapons. Not state-on-state warfare, but some sort of terrorist or extremist faction seizing nuclear-armed weapons and being undeterred at the prospect of their own destruction were they to use them. Ultimately, as Oppenheimer says in the new biopic that came out last year, I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. But I digress. That bill in Congress, which is at the heart of all of this, hangs on by a thread. Mike Johnson, the US House Speaker, wants an in-person one-on-one meeting with Biden before he takes any action on the bill for Ukraine. NBC are reporting, citing a source close to Mr Johnson. In the past, the Republicans have claimed the Republicans refused. to. The president has refused, forgive me, to have such a meeting. Meanwhile, Britain continues to do its best to persuade Republicans to pass the bill. Lord Cameron has written an article for The Hill, which is an influential Washington newspaper read by many policymakers and insiders, warning that Congress must not repeat the mistakes of the 1930s by blocking the multi-billion pound aid package for Ukraine. The Foreign Secretary said the West must not show the weakness displayed against Hitler in an unusually blunt intervention into American politics. His overtures were immediately rejected by Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Trump-supporting Republican, who told him to kiss my ass. She said, we're all sick of the absurd name-calling. It isn't going to bully me into funding the war in Ukraine. Now, say what you want about David Cameron, but he has been a very proactive foreign secretary since he took over recently. He is currently on a three-day tour of EU nations to drum up extra financial and military backing for Kyiv. That comes off the back of a spooked NATO increasing its spending to what its chief Jens Stoltenberg is calling unprecedented levels today, with 18 of the alliance's 31 members on track to hit the minimum spend of GDP 2%. As we report earlier in the week, that group now includes Germany, Europe's largest economy, which is set to reach this target this year for the first time. It means European NATO member states will be spending a record $380 billion. But France is not expected to hit the 2% level until 2025 as part of its plan to bolster its defence spending. In 2014, when the spending target was set at a summit in Cardiff, just for a little bit of context, 
Only three countries reached the goal, Britain, the US and Greece. So much progress has been made. But the question of whether it and the time frame when confronted with it in an increasingly bellicose Russia is still very much out there. It's not just Lord Cameron on a grand tour of Europe. Zelensky will travel to Germany and France on Friday for meetings with Scholz and Macron, his office have announced. Zelensky will also address the Munich Security Conference on Saturday, where he will hold talks with US Vice President Kamala Harris. Macron will sign a security agreement with Zelensky in Paris on Friday, the Elysee said in a statement, although it didn't release specific details about the nature of the agreement. I think it's fair to speculate, though, that this will have something to do with the bilateral deal that is based on the one that Ukraine and the UK have signed, which agrees to provide security assurances for the next decade. Security assurances. A phrase I believe we're fated to hear again and again in the coming weeks and months. But as we've discussed several times, there are security assurances and then there are security assurances. What do we mean by that? What is considered a robust enough deterrent to deter Russia in future? Which countries, if any, will be willing to provide Article 5 style guarantees? But lastly, just zooming in on the messaging coming out of Moscow today, I was quite struck by something Putin said last night, namely that Biden would be a better US president for Russia than Trump, describing the incumbent as more experienced and predictable. His comments, as I say, came last night, marking his first vocal foray into November's presidential election. Why say this? when it is so widely speculated that the reverse is true, given Trump's remarks over the war in Ukraine. We can only speculate. Perhaps it's a strategy to ensure Trump isn't painted as Putin's ally, thereby weakening his position in the race. Or perhaps it's more honest than we think. Biden is predictable. Trump is not. That makes Biden easier to outfox, as with his predecessor Obama, arguably. Maybe Putin thinks the best scenario is one where Trump undermines the Ukrainian cause but does not win the presidency. We'll have to see, but interesting nonetheless. Either way, it may present an opportunity for the Ukrainians. Trump hates to be derided by anyone, so maybe this will make him more amenable to be charmed. Christopher Miller suggested there had been overtures from Zelensky's team. One to watch, I think. Thank you very much, Francis. We'll go to Svetlana in just a minute. Dom, I know you have one more update you wish to share and analyse with us. Yeah, I just wanted to briefly touch on an announcement that might be in the sort of boring but important category. So yesterday, during a meeting with military and government officials and defence industry representatives, President Zelensky ordered the creation of a new, what he's calling a comprehensive system linking the army and industry. So came from the uh, Kiev Independent. They say the goal of this is to make manufacturers more aware of the needs of the front line. We know Ukraine's increasing efforts to build up its own defence production capacities. And you just heard from Francis there about these other initiatives that are going on with Britain and so on. So President Zelensky said the front line requires a rapid response to challenges and threats. We make every effort to protect what is most important on the battlefield, our warriors Lives, And I just wanted to mention briefly how difficult it is to get that bit right. It, you might think that all you need is, is a soldier to go and speak to someone in industry and say, I need a gun, big gun, bigger than that. That's one bigger than that as well. And lot, lots more of that. Now, that is one way of doing it. But you will absolutely bankrupt your treasury before you know, before you've got anything 
capable at all and it won't nothing will talk to each other nothing will work together so getting that right is really really tricky in britain we have what's called dens defense equipment and support big old place down in down in bristol and that's where the it's mostly civilians down there quite a lot of uniform as well but mostly civilians that's when they face industry and they lay the contracts out now, in order to make sure that it is that there is military involvement, you have what's called requirement managers. So these are people who know that the area they're working. In. So engineers, obviously, in that bit, infantiers in that bit, tank commanders in that bit, and so on and so forth. You hope that the people who who are knitting that together have actually had operational experience from the from the part of the military that they are then representing. You know, you can't have the unit speaking directly to firms, making commitments. Because they are contracts, a verbal contract is as much as a written contract. We need open competition in this country. You can't just go and sort of promise a company, even though they might make the best widget. And you may have seen it on operations with your American, French, Dutch, whoever colleagues. And you go, right, we just need to go and buy that, lads. You know, we, we can't do that because that's that would breach competition policy. And who's to say that you're, it's not your brother-in-law who runs that company, et cetera, et cetera. So it is quite process heavy. There are lots of rooms for things to be misinterpreted, adjusted, costed out. There's requirements creep as well. So you get the military people in there who are, it's very easy to say, because a lot of these things can take time. So halfway through a a two-year program, you might say, oh, this brand new widget's just come out. Can you put that in as well? It's very easy for requirements creep to get in there. And then once the tender comes back from industry, you need the military involvement there, what's called a tender assessment panel. And believe me, there's nothing tender about a tender assessment panel, having sat through a few. That is a painful day or week, sometimes months-long process of going line by line through the offer and seeing if what the company says they will provide for the money you're going to give them actually meets what you're after. So there's huge areas here where it could get very murky indeed. And the sort of big the mantra is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the very good. Don't hang out for that absolute the very best that's available today because you just won't you just won't get it a lot of expectation management is needed and it's always got to be it's always got to go back to the military users for the final say so because if it changes too much then that might impact the tactics that have been designed about how to use the thing it might impact other programs it might impact so much else so getting that little bit right between the military need the users need and what the the end of the line, the company at the end of the process can produce for the money the government stump up is very tricky. The closer you get it is often better, but that can be rife with, it's open to corruption, basically, if the users are speaking directly to the manufacturers and saying, oh, just, you know, just do that, just do that. You know, you don't know where all these contracts are going. But equally, you know, people are leaning into this and the companies want to do their best, hopefully, for the users. And so they would be open to those kind of conversations. So it's very, very tricky in terms of the process to decide when you say stop, print, just do that. Even though in two months time, there's going to be something better on the market and there'll be a better thermal site or there'll be a, an even better type of recallless rifle or what have you. You know, So it's a very, very tricky area. So interesting that President Zelensky has announced this new comprehensive system linking the army to industry. I think it's all nested within his campaign of trying to weed out corruption as far as possible. If this is a new organisation, um, that's one thing. If it's a you know, morphing an existing organisation, that would be slightly harder. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to make the point that it's not as easy as saying, oh, I've seen that. It looks brilliant. Let's just go and buy loads of them. It really doesn't work like that. It is, it's hugely difficult, that, that linking up with a defence industrial base. But again, will be very interesting to get a reaction from industry on that.
Thank you very much for that, Dom, and before that, Francis. Let's go to friend of the podcast, Svetlana Moronets, uh, Ukrainian journalist at The Spectator magazine. Svetlana, thank you so much for coming into the studio. It's really lovely to see you again. Let's stay on a military subject then. Can we talk about one of the issues dominating the Ukrainian domestic scene right now, mobilization. What's the latest in the government's plans to call up thousands of new soldiers? Thank you for having me today. Uh, a bill intended to draft more soldiers passed the first reading in the parliament last week. And the second reading will happen later this month. Then Zelensky will have to sign it. According to our recently sacked army commander, uh, Valery Zaluzhny, Ukraine needs to conscript up to half a million people more to build up the reserves and replace those exhausted by fighting, injured and dead. If approved, the new under the new law, the minimum conscription age will be lowered from 27 to 25. Some summonses will be sent online and also distributed in person. All the new recruits will be trained for two to three months, while those aged 18 to 24 will be obliged to undergo five months of military training. Also, the minimum salary was set as 20,000 hryvnias, if in pounds it will be around 420 pounds, a figure that can go up to 2,500 pounds, depending on where soldiers are posted and it will level. I understand that for British listener, the salaries might sound like so few, but taking in account uh, that the average salary in Ukraine is about 300 pounds, so it's, it's, it, co- it is considered well-paid job. And the most important is that the new law promises that soldiers who serve 36 months can go home and be immune from en- enlistment for two years. It's something that Ukrainian soldiers have been asking since a lot of time ago because many of them were fighting for two years without end. They didn't leave the front line and they are tired. And I remember last summer when I was in Ukraine at the front line doing some reporting and I talked to soldiers. Back then they were already saying, okay, we lack troops, we need reserves, we are tired, our battalions are not full. Finally, those things begin to change. And also the new law, under the new law, people can expect harsh penalties if they try to evade the conscription and they can start, they can lose the right to travel outside Ukraine or drive a vehicle, their funds can be seized or they can be imprisoned. And these harsh restrictions are up for conversation right now in Ukraine and several MPs are talking that it is too harsh, it is too repressive and it's against human rights. So in the first reading they will try to make some changes and how to make it not so harsh because Ukraine is trying to be democratic. Uh, Ukraine is a democratic country and we try not to be like Russia when people are just being taken to the front line, forced, and they don't have any rights. So they're trying to do it in the right way, in the right way. But right now, it's a very critical topic in Ukraine, and all the government institutions are suffering a big downfall in their approval ratings. 
and Zelensky is known for his habit to approve only popular decisions, so it's be hard for all of them to actually vote for it. But the urge for mass conscription is really big, taking in account what is happening in Avdiivka right now and the rest of the front line because r- Russian forces have taken the initiative and we need more people to stop them. Thank you so much for that overview, Svetlana. Could we take a step back and just lay... I mean, you, you touched on it, I think, then in your last answer, but lay out just how serious an issue this is for the Ukrainian war machine, this necessity to find more people to send to the front. I mean, Ukrainian uh, front line right now is undermanned and undergunned. And, for example, Russians gathered 40,000 troops to attack Kupiansk, a city in Kharkiv region, and only 20,000 Ukrainian troops will be defending the city. So, I mean, the need for conscription is obvious. And... It's also about Ukrainian army has over 800,000 soldiers fighting, but they have had no rest for two years and they need to be replaced or because most of them receive a 10 days holiday per year. And it's so few and their families have been protesting in the last two months in cave asking for reinforcement, for reinforcement, asking to let them go home. And on one side, we have the soldiers and their families who are demanding that. And on the other side, we have the civilians who were hoping that the fighting could continue without them. Because the longer the war lasts, and the more difficult it is to convince a person why they should put the state over their life and health. And also, the more they see that Russia is winning, the less they are willing to and have motivation to go and sacrifice their lives, you know. It's a very hard topic, and Ukrainian government has to find a way how to convince people to enlist. And, for example, if they show that soldiers who have done their duty come back home and they are treated with respect, they receive the help from the state, all of their needs are paid, then maybe people will be more willing to... To enlist and also it's about some are worried that they will receive some weeks of training and will be thrown directly to Avdivka, you know. And but army needs not only infantry, they need drone operators, they need people working in intelligence, in communications. So there are a lot of vacancies and also in the defense sector. Actually Zelensky said that people who work in the factories that produce weapons for Ukrainian army, they can be booked from enlistment. Why I remembered, there is one important thing about conscription. It is how costly it is. Zelensky said that conscripting half a million people will cost Ukraine at least 10 billion pounds. And he doesn't know where to take the money. And right now there is a proposal that businesses who pay certain amount of taxes will be allowed to book their employees from the conscription. But it's also a controversial topic because does it mean that only poor will have to fight? And I don't know uh, what they will decide on that topic. There, there was also an option that businesses will have to pay a certain fee every month to the state for booking the, peop- the people. But I don't know what they're going to do about that. 
And Svetlana, could you give us a sense of how Ukrainian society is reacting to this? I guess I'm particularly interested in, as well in the younger people who are now coming into that bracket of the age range when they might be called up. What sense do you get from how society is reacting to this? I will give you the example of my friends in Ukraine, men, those who, many of them volunteered, but those who didn't, they say, okay, I'm not going to enlist voluntarily, but if I receive the salmon, I will go and fight there and not going to flee. But of course, they are scared and they hope they won't have to fight. And, you know, I find it hard to talk about that as a woman who has a freedom, who could leave the country and be here safe right now in Britain talking in this podcast. And for them, it is much more difficult. And for their families, for their mother, fathers who don't want their son to go and fight. And right now, I, if Ukraine was winning, I think people would, would feel the inspiration to go and, okay, let's finish it and the, one, the war will be over soon and all these horrors would be over. But right now in Ukraine, the feeling is that the war is going to last for so long and is there a sense to go and fight? But on the other side, people don't want to negotiate with Russia. And there's there are obvious reasons for that, because how can we trust Russia on anything? And also, if we negotiate right now on the taking into account the current situation on the battlefield, the agreement would be on Russian terms. So, of course, Ukrainians are no, don't want to do that. And our government, they will have to, Zelensky will have to decide or he is taking unpopular decisions and forcing people to enlist, like sending summonses to them and to the young people. Or there are other options like to talk, but we know how talks with Russia. Thank you very much, Svetlana. Dom and Francis, do you have any questions of your own? Thanks, Svetlana. It's great to have you back. My question relates to what you were just talking about there and those friends of yours in Ukraine who have not signed up but are expecting that they might well be called but remain in the country for that scenario. What have you heard is the latest on those who are leaving the country trying to flee the draft? Because we know the numbers are quite extensive. Of course, there are men who are trying to flee and fearing the draft, at least 25,000 fighting age men have fled Ukraine so far. And more than 18,000 have been caught trying to cross the border. But there is also a new strategy that Ukrainian military is trying to implement is to replace the the enlistment with recruitment, meaning that... they are opening offices around Ukraine, and recently they opened one in Lviv, where any man can come and ask about different brigades. He can be recommended what position he can take. If the people feel more clear about their future in the army, maybe they will have more will to enlist. And also this that they can choose what position they will take, because everybody is scared to be in the infantry. But if they have uh, some skills or they want to learn, for example, that Ukraine is right now building its drone army and a lot of drone operators are needed. So it's something they can choose of. But still, for the majority, is just sitting and waiting for the salmon. Or I know uh, some who don't leave their house because they afraid to receive the salmon on the street and sometimes you can sometimes you can see videos how en- enlistment officers are grabbing men on the street and put them in the van and they drive them to the enlistment office 
and of course it hits hard on the reputation of the defense ministry and on Zelensky's ratings too. If they stop that, maybe the things will be better. And But also, even those men who don't leave the houses, they won't have choice because the summonses, according to the new law, will be sent online. And if they don't show up after receiving that summon on their email in 10 days, then they will face harsh sanctions. Svetlana, thank you so much. We'll come back to you at the end for your final thoughts. But Francis, I know there's been a couple of updates that have come in almost while we've been speaking. Can you talk us through them? Yes, David, they certainly have. And just to give a flavour of how fast things are moving in the European and Atlantic spheres at the moment, Hungary has just blocked a package of EU sanctions against Moscow, once again impeding measures designed to assist Ukraine's war effort. That's coming from the Financial Times, just breaking. Hungary was the only naysayer at a meeting of EU ambassadors yesterday that otherwise would have signed off on that sanctions package. It's just been announced, which targets almost 200 people and entities from Russia, China and other countries countries who are deemed to be helping Moscow's war effort. Apparently, officials told the FT that the Hungarians did not agree due to Chinese companies. That's extremely interesting because it plays into all of those concerns we've talked about in the past about the influence that China can have on defence policy as a result of its financial investment in certain countries. It's not just relevant to Africa, this. It's also very relevant in the European context as well. The other bit of news, David, is that Lord Cameron has reiterated those calls that I was talking about earlier on, but he has also brought China in it. He says that China is watching. He also says that Iran is watching as well. Clearly, he's trying to shift his his messaging to what he thinks may well get cut through in Washington, but a lot happening in both spheres. So we'll keep people updated tomorrow as these develop. Thank you very much, Francis. And actually, there's something that's just come in as well, which I'll read out because I realise I didn't have time to send it to you. This is that Turkey's president, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has expressed his ongoing willingness to mediate between Russia and Ukraine for a, quote, fair peace deal between the two countries. Uh, Erdogan, uh, a text of his comments en route from a visit to Egypt, included the lines, we have brought the parties together in Turkey on multiple occasions. We can do this again and open the door to peace through a solution-focused process management free from external influences. In our meetings with both President Putin and President Zelensky, we continue our efforts in this pursuit. Turkey is among several countries, including China and Hungary, who have repeatedly called for peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. Coming up after this short break, I ask Dom, Francis and Svetlana for their final thoughts. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, thank you. So I note that today NATO defence ministers are meeting in Brussels, continuing their preparations for the big NATO summit in Washington in July 75th, at which the, the next Secretary General will be announced. We're told he definitely will be announced this time, he or she. Smart money at the moment is on Mark Rutte from the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, but still a long way to go. But anyway, that's coming up in July. Now, previewing the meetings, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the current Secretary General, he said that this year, 2024, 18 allies of the 31, 31, 18 out of the 31 is going to spend 2% of GDP on defence. That's a six-fold increase since 2014. Obviously, uh, this is not only because of Donald Trump's comments a few days ago, but that is the current context and NATO spending. Mr. Stoltenberg also said that NATO this year are going to be spending 380 billion US dollars in defence on defence. Yeah, all good, going in the right direction, but there's there there is still the obvious 
question in the room that it's 10 years after the pledge was made about the 2% thing and 18 is better than three as it was back then. It ain't 31. So still there's still some way to go there. He also talked about, he's saying that, the, that NATO's laid 10, telling, oh, sorry, $10 billion worth of contracts for ramping up of production, ammunition production, a lot of which would go to Ukraine. Again, good, but it's all moving in the right direction, but it's taking some time to get there. And he said that a lot of this resourcing and the resilience, the depth to your military capability are being tested at the moment through this big, the big exercise, exercise Steadfast Defender. He said it's the largest NATO exercise in decades, which is true. Approximately 90,000 forces from all 31 allies and Sweden. Sweden expected you know, any moment now to be number 32. I mean, that's good. No, 90,000. But just to look at that, it, exercises are good. Exercises with your allies are terrific. 90,000 across a couple of months, across much of Eastern Europe. On the one hand, that's you could say that, that's exercising a huge amount. I just question whether or not the plans for exercise steadfast defender that I've seen, there, there are lots of smaller exercises within under that big umbrella. So you're testing lots of different types of military capability, lots of different areas with different allies and different scale of forces. It is all good. But if you go back to the Cold War, you know, some of the exercises there were over 100,000 100, troops in a much smaller piece of real estate and a much shorter time frame, i.e. replicating the type of fight that we see in Ukraine today. So the high-end, state-on-state, very personnel-intensive, very violent type of fight. So I just wonder if a Steadfast Defender is good from what I can see of it, but I'd, I'd like to see next year's Steadfast Defender 2 that's simulating a much more violent, much much louder, much noisier, much more active a fight in a much smaller piece of terrain. That would be that would also be a very valid exercise, I think. Also worth noting, just finally, yesterday the US-led Ukraine Defense Contact Group, the Ramstein Group, met at NATO headquarters discussing discussing Ukraine. And then today the NATO Ukraine Council is going to is going to have going to be we're going to see Rustem Amerov, the Ukraine's defense minister, he's going to participate in that. So you know a lot of the right people in the right place saying the right things. But we just got to keep our eye on what the outputs of these are and then put it in context to see if it's really quite as golden and shiny as they would wish us to first believe. I'm not saying it's not all good, but we've just got to pick these things apart as good little journalists do. Thanks, David. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Francis Stanley, would you like to go next? Thanks, David. Tonight is the night. We will be at the US Embassy here in London to record a special live episode of the podcast with guests who have a real expertise in many of the areas we've discussed recently. They include Ambassador Bill Taylor, former American ambassador to Ukraine until recently, and Arizia Lutsevich of Chatham House, an expert on all things defence in Ukraine. We're really looking forward to that and meeting some of you, our listeners there. If you want to join us remotely, subscribers can stream it live, assuming that Dom remembers to turn the power on, and send us questions. If you're not a subscriber yet, by popular demand, you can get a free trial at extra.telegraph.co.uk slash events. And we'll also have a link in the description. We really look forward to it. 
Thank you very much, Francis. And just to repeat, um, if you're a Telegraph subscriber, you can watch the event live. We'll, of course, be putting a video out in the next few days of it, and it will be a special podcast on Saturday as well. But yes, very much looking forward to speaking to Bill, Ta- Bill Taylor and Arisia Lutsevich later. I think it'll be really fascinating, especially with all the news coming out of the US at the moment. There's a lot to be said and discussed and thought about when it comes to the US's place in the world, its responsibility and actions towards its allies, what happens to NATO, and of course, at the heart of everything, what happens in and to Ukraine. Uh, Svetlana Moronets, would you like the very final words today? Yes, of course. What I would like to add is that it doesn't matter how many men Ukraine will conscript. If they don't have what to fight with, they are going to die in hundreds and thousands. At the front line right now, the soldiers are counting every artillery shell they use because they don't have enough. And everything depends right now on the allies, especially the the U.S., whether they approve that long-suffered aid bill and also on Zelensky's government, how they negotiate that with the allies and also how they unite Ukrainians on the need of enlistment. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. 
So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.